Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to spend some time with you here this morning. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors. If you're at home, it's great to have you uh, joining us here today. I'm going to start off my uh, time with everyone today uh, asking you a, a very pointed question, and it's this. Where in the world is God? Where's he at? Specifically, where's God in this mess that we're calling 2020? Our world is a wreck. It doesn't take much effort to begin to question uh, if God's around and if he is, what he's up to. Uh, we all know the story. Uh, we're living in the midst of it right now. We've got this pandemic going on. Uh, it has completely upset the status quo of things. Uh, there's really no end in sight. People are projections of vaccines and all that kind of stuff, but we can't be certain of any of that. Uh, what we do know is people are getting sick. Some are dying. We know that depression, addiction, and suicide are on the rise. Uh, we know that family and friends are divided and sometimes estranged over what to do about all of this. Uh, the world economy is a wreck. Uh, unemployment has seen some of the highest numbers uh, in history. Uh, for those who are still working, uh, many of you are having to, to work from home. That has all kinds of implications to all the uh, restaurants and other businesses that operate during the day that count on people going to their workplace. Uh, our educational system is struggling, trying to figure out uh, what to do with, with our, our students and, and our college students. Do they go to school in person? Is it online? Is it a hybrid? Many of you are going through that right now. Uh, businesses of all sizes are, are closing, and they're closing for good. Uh, people are defaulting on their mortgages. Some people can't pay, make their rent payments. The only reason why we don't have a, a huge uh, influx of, or outflux, whatever you would call it, of people onto the street is because the government basically is saying, hey, you can't foreclose on people, you can't evict people. And that's just the half of it. Centuries of unhealed wounds born from racism and prejudice and injustice have once again been exposed. People protest in the streets, some of those protests morph into, into riots where there's things that are burned down and people are injured and killed. Uh, cities talk about defunding police departments all in the midst of crime uh, continuing uh, to rise in our cities. Fundamental rights like the freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom to bear arms and freedom of assembly are being systematically infringed upon and in some cases actually even stripped away. And if that's not bad enough, we're in the midst of a presidential election that's going to make the election from 2016 look like a high school student council election. That's where we're at right now. You know what I, I like about having these services inside? Outside, I can't get any feedback hardly at all from folks. You know, I don't know whether people are laughing at my jokes or not, but... You guys at least chuckled a little. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate that. Now, in the midst of all of this, it can seem as if God is actually checked out. That, that he doesn't care. That, that he's not working. And when that happens, it becomes, I, I don't know, maybe not for you, but for me, it begins to be hard to pray, hard to read the Bible, hard to, to worship. And then what's really easy, though, is to perhaps abandon our faith or conform to our culture or just kind of go with the flow. And that is very similar to what was happening in the life of a young Jewish woman by the name of Esther, whose life we're going to explore this morning as we continue this series called Following the Faithful. Now, Esther's life is documented in, well, in the book of Esther. Not real creative name, okay? Uh, it's a fascinating account 
of the unseen hand of God working behind the scenes in the lives of a people who have completely assimilated themselves into their secular culture, a culture that's not unlike our own. And uh, if you are familiar with the book of Esther, uh, which you now are because you watched the video, uh, I want you to forget everything that that video talked taught you, everything that you learned back in Sunday school class, because this is not an account of a godly Jewish woman who saves her people. How Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo and I came up with the idea of putting a person like Esther in a series called Following the Faithful uh, begins to question our pastoral wisdom. You see, this is an account of a woman who is morally ambiguous. She hides her Jewish heritage. She appears to have embraced the pagan culture from which she has been pulled into. She, she has used her beauty and sexuality to ingratiate herself to the king so as to become his queen. She's a woman who risked her life on behalf of her people only when it was pointed out to her that if she didn't, she was going to die anyhow. And what's really crazy is she's a woman who ultimately requested that a massacre be allowed to go on an additional day. And all the while, God still works through her. Now, before you write me off, as some middle-aged, pasty white, balding misogynist who finds some kind of sick, twisted joy in destroying beloved Sunday school lessons, let me to clarify something. I fully realize that women living in the ancient Middle East, in the ancient world, period, uh, had an extraordinarily difficult, if not horrific, time. And I am fully aware that in those days, women were treated like property. They could be sold by their fathers to pay off a family debt. Uh, there's accounts in the Bible where women were forced to marry their rapist. They could be one of, of many wives. They could be divorced by their husband and thrown into a world uh, where they live destitute simply because the husband says to you, I divorce you. So I am not in any way condoning any of those behaviors. Those behaviors, they break my heart. I believe that, that women are to be esteemed they're to be protected and honored and respected by all people, but especially by men. But that desire isn't about to make me sanitize God's word to make it somehow appealing to a 21st century audience. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. The book of Esther is 10 chapters long. We could devote 10 solid weeks to it. Instead, we're going to devote about 30, 35 minutes to it this morning. So let's start the stage. If you open up to Esther chapter 1, we're going to look at the, the first nine verses of uh, the book. And uh, if you were able to stand, if you would do it in honor of God's word. I've been practicing uh, this king's name. I'm going to butcher it multiple times. Uh, Pastor Ben and I have some Bible software called Lagos that uh, has a pronunciation button. You can click on that and it pronounces the word. The, 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 the Hebrew reader uh, that recorded that, that, that word, there's no human way to actually pronounce it the way that, that he did. So I'm going to butcher it. Just uh, know that that's going to happen. Now in the days of King Ashuerus, the Ashurers, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days King Ashurers sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. 
In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, President Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, or pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to his edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, the book of Esther is unlike any other book in the Bible. It is the only book in the Bible where there is no mention of God, there is no mention of prayer, there is no mention of faith, there's no mention of any kind of overt miracle. It's as if the, the author of this book is trying to emphasize the absence of God. And the events that are described in this book occur about 450 years prior to the birth of Jesus at the height of the uh, Persian uh, nation or Persian empires ruling basically of the known world. And the king, uh, who is the son of Darius, who was the king that we talked about in our discussion on Daniel and the lion's den last week, uh, Darius's son, Ashurerus, is now the king of Persia. And he rules over this vast empire that goes all the way from, from India in the east to Ethiopia in the west. And there are three other books in the Bible that basically describe this time, this same period. And it's a, a period of time where the Jewish people are living in captivity because they have been idolaters. They have disobeyed God for years upon years, centuries upon centuries, and then they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Persians. And two of the books of the Bible that talk about this period, Ezra and Nehemiah, they both detail the, the call of the Jewish people to return to their homeland of Judea, to the city of Jerusalem, uh, because what has happened is the king... Uh, Darius has, has allowed them to, to go back. And, and so Ezra and Nehemiah are, are calling the people back to, to leave captivity and go back and rebuild the promised land. And there are scores and hundreds and thousands of Jews who are obedient to that call. And then you have the book of Daniel, which shows Daniel, who's also living in captivity, actively living out his Jewish faith. Everybody knew that Daniel was a Jew, and he resists being conformed to the, the pagan culture of his captives, even to the point where he's ultimately going to be killed in a lion's den. But as, as you're about to see, Esther is far different. Esther and her older cousin Mordecai, who is raising her, did not obey Ezra and Nehemiah's call to return to Jerusalem. Nor did they risk their lives to remain faithful like Daniel, but instead it seems that they pretty much have put their Jewish faith on the back burner and they have assimilated into the Persian culture. Now, the, the book of Esther, it starts out with this big party, this big banquet that the king has has uh, set before the people. It's six months long, and in this, this banquet, this party, he is displaying all of his stuff, everything that he owns. It, and he's got a lot of stuff because it takes him six months to pull off this parade of all of his stuff. 
And at the end of the sixth month of, of look at how great I am, this look at how great I am party, basically, the king decides that he's going to wrap up that six months with a seven-day-long kegger. And the motto of the kegger is this. There is no compulsion. In other words, you can drink as much as you want, and no one's going to give you a hassle. You can drink as little as you want, and no one's going to give you a hassle. And on day seven of the kegger, we're told the king is merry with wine. Now, that is an understatement. This dude has been drinking a lot. And he does what most drunk people do. He does stupid. And the king's stupid was to demand that his beautiful wife, Queen Vashti, be brought before all of his drunken friends so that they can oogle her body. Now, Queen Vashti will have nothing of that, and rightly so. And, and so she refuses the king. The king is both embarrassed, he is furious, he asks his friends what to do, his drunken friends, and they say that Vashti should be deposed as queen and kicked to the curb. And that's exactly what happens. Vashti's deposed, she's kicked to the curb. The king's got a problem now. He's got, does not have a wife any longer. And he's not happy about that. So his buddies come along and say, hey, we got a great idea. Go and gather up all of, of the beautiful young women from the entirety of the Persian Empire and put them in a harem. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. You're talking from India to Ethiopia. And, and, and there's, there, there's no cars, there's no trains, there's no planes, there's no space shuttles, there's nothing. So you can imagine how long it took to bring all of these young women together. But over this period of time, they bring all of these young women together from all across the kingdom. They're put in the king's harem under the guidance of the harem master, a guy by the name of Haggai. Now, Haggai would... would put the, the woman, these young women, through a, a year-long beauty treatment that was probably sponsored by the precursor of Oil of Olay. That's who, and they're, they're getting them all dollied up and dressed up and all made beautiful and stuff like that. And then the game plan is that after the, the year of their preparation, one by one, night by night, they would be presented to the king. And eventually the king would find a woman who, who pleased him greatly, and she would become the king. Or not the king, the queen. Now, one of the young women who is chosen for the harem is a young woman by the name of Esther. She's a, a Jew. She has been orphaned and is being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. But before she goes into the harem, Mordecai pulls her aside and says, Esther, you cannot let out of the bag that you are a Jew. Now, this is very important because it's very easy to make Esther and Mordecai out to be these incredibly faithful Jews. But I don't believe that is the case. First, they're alive during a time when the Jewish people are permitted, actually encouraged, to return back to the promised land, to go back to Jerusalem. But instead, for some reason, they remain in Susa, the capital of Persia, in the midst of a completely idolatrous culture. Second, unlike Daniel, who remained faithful to God in his Jewish faith, even to the point of being thrown into a lion's den, Mordecai tells Esther to deny her Jewish lineage, which means that when she's in the harem for that 12 months of beauty preparation, no doubt she is violating numbers of Old Testament dietary laws and ritual purity laws. And third, as I stated at the beginning, there's absolutely no mention of Esther 
or Mordecai praying, no mention of their faith in God. Now, some will come alongside and say, Pastor Mike, you are making arguments from silence. But I believe the silence of Esther and Mordecai as it relates to their faith is actually the very point. I believe that God is showing us that he works even in the midst of those who are not necessarily consistent in their faith to him. Now, once Esther's in the harem, we read in verse 9 of chapter 2 this. And the young woman, that would be Esther, pleased Haggai and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Now, as, as always in the Bible, verb tenses are extremely important. And the tenses of, of the Hebrew verbs that have been translated pleased in one are in a tense which is called the qual imperfect. And what that means is that they are actions done by the subject, which is Esther, which continue into the future. In other words, Esther is actively engaged in working to put herself in the good graces of the harem keeper. She's actively doing this. She's not passively sitting back and letting things happen. Now, she has been forced into the harem. You need to understand, she didn't go there of her own volition. They, they drug all these ladies into the harem. But now that she's in the harem, she's not passively sitting back and, and, and just letting things happen to her. Now she is actively doing whatever it takes in order to become the queen. And eventually, Esther's one night with the king occurs. And we're told about it in verse 17 of chapter 2. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, at the end of chapter 2, sometime after Esther becomes queen, her cousin Mordecai, he's sitting outside of the gates of the king. And he overhears a couple of guys, two guys in particular, making plans to kill the king. So Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king initiates an investigation. The investigation uh, confirms Mordecai's uh, explanation of what happens. The guys are arrested, they're killed, and the entire event is written in the king's chronicles, basically the king's diary. But Mordecai is never ever uh, rewarded for exposing this plot. And then between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, five years have passed. No doubt, during this time, Esther is enjoying all of the benefits of being the queen of Persia. And Mordecai is doing whatever a Jew does who didn't go with the rest of the Jews back to Jerusalem. That's what he's doing in the, the pagan capital of Susa. Now, enter an evil man by the name of Haman. Haman is a, a Persian government official who the king decides that he's going to elevate into the highest position of the land. He's going to become the number one guy in all of the land. It's a position that was similar to, to the position that Daniel held last week when we were talking. But Haman, or, uh, Haman was no Daniel. He was an egotist. He was also an agite. And the Agiites were, were descendants of the Amalekites who had been the enemies of the Jews from the moment that Moses pulls the Jews out of Egypt and, and brings them to the, the, the promised land. And the Agiites hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Agiites. And one of the perks of Haman's promotion required that 
all of the subjects of Susa, they bow down to him whenever they see him. Now, this is not necessarily a big problem for, for anyone, and especially it's not a big problem for the Jews, because we see throughout the Bible Jews regularly bowing down to various government officials out of respect for them. But for some unknown reason, perhaps it was pride, perhaps it was some kind of ancient animosity from all the stuff that happened way back with Moses, whatever the reason, Mordecai doesn't bow down. And Haman is furious. He's really jacked about all this. He's so furious that he goes to the king and has the king prepare an edict that on a particular day, about a year in the future, that all of the Jews living in Persia would be killed. The king signs the thing, and the clock starts ticking. Now, when Mordecai learns of the law, he reaches out to Queen Esther and asks her to intervene on behalf of the Jews because she's in the position where she can actually intervene. And initially, it's interesting because Queen Esther, she is unwilling to intervene. She knows that if she goes to the king uninvited, she could be killed and she doesn't want to die. And it only changes when Mordecai actually sends her a message that's recorded in verse 13 and 14, which is a, a message that many of you will remember if you ever studied this passage in the past. Then Mordecai told them, the messengers, to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, even though you're the queen, you are still a dead woman walking. You may think that you're going to get around this, but the fact of the matter is you're not. You're going to die. If you don't do anything, you're going to die. If you do something, if you go into the king's uh, chambers uninvited, he may kill you anyhow. But regardless, somehow the Jews are going to get provided for is basically what he says. Now, this is a, a defining moment for Esther. She has already been secularized before becoming queen. Over the course of those five years that she's the queen, she's been secularized a whole lot more because she's hiding her Judaism the entire time. But she decides to take the risk by approaching the king. And you see what happens here? At this critical moment, there still is absolutely no mention of God. You don't see Mordecai praying. You don't see Esther praying. You don't see anything going on. The only thing that even comes close to something being spiritual is the fact that, that Mordecai and the Jews are fasting and lamenting. And brothers and sisters, sadly, that describes many of us. Many of us have gotten so completely sucked into this culture. And as a result, we've placed God on the side, thinking that we can handle things on our own. And, and when things are going smoothly, many of us who claim the name of Christ, we don't even think about God. And when things are starting to fall apart, we might engage in some kind of spiritual activity here and there, but the reality is we're still trying to figure out things on our own or hoping that they're just going to work out. And it's amazing that even Mordecai's words, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, doesn't even speak that God is the one who's going to do that. Mordecai doesn't say, regardless of what you do, God's going to deliver. What Mordecai is doing is he's just hoping for the best. 
But just because Mordecai doesn't mention God and just because Esther doesn't pray to God doesn't mean that God isn't involved. Behind the scenes, preparing to to change victory or defeat into victory and sorrow into joy and hopelessness into hopefulness. Now, it takes Esther three days to work up the courage to go into the chambers of the king's palace. And when she arrives, rather than killing her, the king is happy to see her and asks her what she wants. He offers her even up to half of the kingdom, basically. But rather than coming out right there and pleading on, on behalf of herself and the other Jews, she asks the king that he and Haman might come to dinner with her later in the day. And at the dinner, the king asked her again, you know, what do you want? Why are we doing this? And once again, Esther fails to make the request. She's still afraid. And instead asks the king that he and Haman come to dinner the following day. You know, basically it's like, king, I, I want you to come to dinner at my house today. And then the king comes to dinner at your house, and what are you looking for to bring us to dinner? Well, I, I'd really like to invite you to dinner tomorrow. And it's a very strange thing that happens, but we do strange things when we're fearful. Now, Haman comes out of this first dinner, and he is pumped. He has had, had uh, a meal with the king and the queen all by himself, and now the queen has invited him to come and have a, a second meal the next day. He can't be happier until he heads out of the gates of the palace and runs into Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't bow down. And all of those wonderful feelings that Haman has about his life quickly are destroyed because of this one negative action on the part of Mordecai. How many of us live that way? How many of us go through lives and we've got all these wonderful things happening in our lives and one bad thing happens and it wrecks the rest of our day or week or month or perhaps the rest of our lives. Now, Haman's furious, so he does what a lot of guys do. He goes home and he lets his wife know how upset he is. And his wife is, 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 hears him out. And then the wife, matter-of-factly, basically says, you know what, i got a great idea. Why don't you just build a gallow tonight? Tomorrow, just hang the dude. Let's just get him out of the way. Let's shut this whole thing down. So that's exactly what Haman does. Haman builds gallows, and the next day he heads back to see the king, uh, knowing that he's going to ultimately have a meal with the king and the queen, and then he's going to hang Mordecai. Now, what Haman doesn't realize in all of this, the king had a bad night. I don't know whether it was the food that, that Esther had prepared for him, but he couldn't sleep. And, and so he's trying to find a way to fall asleep, and so he does what a lot of people do. He decides that he's going to read. And so he asks that, that the, the chronicles of his nation be brought before him. So they bring these chronicles of his nation before him. He's looking at the history of what's been going on in his rule, and he happens to stumble upon this plot that had occurred years ago, that, that Mordecai had revealed. And he realizes after reading this thing that Mordecai has never been honored. So he says to himself, that more, when I wake up in the morning, we're going to give Mordecai, uh, uh, we're going to parade him around the entire city and tell people how great this guy is because he thwarted the plan. And who better to parade Mordecai around the land than Haman? So Haman shows up, he's all excited to hang out with the king and the queen, only to find that he's got to march his sworn enemy, the guy that he's going to kill, through the city telling people how wonderful Mordecai is. Now, after he marches Mordecai around the city, before he goes to have the the meal with the king and the queen, he goes home, because he's way stressed out. And he tells his wife, you will not believe what happened today. Oh, Evay. I've got to, I had to march Mordecai around the city. The wife's like, yeah, you're done for, dude. 
You built those, you should have never built those gallows. Whoever told you to build those gallows, not a good thing. So while he's having this conversation with his wife, the, the, the king's uh, soldiers show up and say, hey, Haman, did you forget about the meal with the queen? We've got to get you to the queen. So Haman now comes into the presence of the king and the queen, and by now Esther has worked up the courage to reveal the plot. And she tells the king that Haman, the guy that's sitting in the meal with him right now, is the one who wants to kill all of the Jews and that she is one of them. Now this is too much for the king to take. And so he takes a time out. He goes outside, out onto the, the, the palace porch or patio or whatever it was to get some air. In the meantime, Haman sees that this is a great opportunity to beg the queen for his life. The queen's reclining on a couch. Mordecai, he's probably crying like crazy, you know, begging and pleading. And in the process, he ends up putting himself over to the queen. Just then, the king comes through the doors. The king thinks to himself, oh my gosh, this guy wants to kill the Jews. Now he's assaulting my wife in my own house. And he has Haman taken and hung on the gallows that he provided or that he created for Mordecai. But the story doesn't end there. Then the king gives Esther all of the money, all of the wealth from Haman's household. And at the same time, he appoints Mordecai to Haman's position and gives Mordecai his signet ring, which means Mordecai can make laws on behalf of the king. And it seems if everything is working out now, but, but here's the problem. The law that the Jews are going to get killed can't be revoked. If you remember from last week that, that when the king found out that he, Daniel was going to get thrown in the lion's den and he wanted to change things, remember they said the laws of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked? That was the rule that they had. Once the law got passed, it was happening no matter what. And so, there's a problem. The Jews are going to get killed. Now, because Mordecai can make laws, Mordecai... Eh, comes up with the idea, well, let's do this. Let's make a law that the Jews can actually protect themselves. And not only can they protect themselves and, and kill the people who come after them, they can kill all of their family. And on top of that, they can take all of the people's stuff. And so that's what happens. Mordecai creates this law, uses the king's signet ring to endorse the law, and now the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And eventually the day comes where the Jews are to be killed and the Jews defend themselves, and just in the capital city alone, the Jews kill 500 people. And then the king asked Esther, is there anything else that you want done? And Esther, and I find this amazing, Esther says, yeah, there's one other thing that I want to have done. I'd like to see the massacre occur for another day. And so a massacre occurs across the entirety of Persia. At the end of the day, the Jews kill 75,000 of their enemies. And the book ends, and there is absolutely no mention of God. None. It ends with a massacre. So what is the message from this? The message is this. God is always, always at work. Sometimes, like in the book of Daniel, he is at work out front for everybody to see using his faithful people as the conduits of what he's doing. And sometimes, like in the book of Esther, God is working behind the scenes through the lives of his children who are not following very closely after him at all. Now, I want to show you briefly how, how God is working behind the scenes in all of this. You see, 
Mordecai and Esther, they don't go back to Jerusalem when they could. But God is still working. Mordecai tells Esther to hide her Jewish faith. Esther does just that, and in the process violates all kinds of Old Testament laws. And God isn't stopped. Mordecai just happens to tell, be at the gate to, to hear about the plot. Esther just happens to be the queen that Mordecai can tell about the plot. And the king just happens to fail to reward Mordecai for revealing the plot. And God is still at work. Mordecai decides in his pride not to bow down to Haman. Haman in his pride decides that he's going to manipulate the king into executing the Jews because one of the things that I forgot to tell you is Haman gave like 10,000 pieces of silver or whatever to the king as a bribe to actually do the law. And the king in his pride allows the plan to move forward. When told about the plot to, to kill the Jews, Esther, she initially refuses but that doesn't stop God. And when Esther finally agrees to intervene, she fears that she will be killed by the king and delays for three days. That doesn't stop God. And then when Esther fails to disclose that Haman is the one who is going to have all of these people killed during the first meal, that doesn't stop God. Because what happens? Esther's Failure gives Haman the opportunity to see Mordecai not bow down again and go home to his wife and hear his wife say, build gallows, and Haman builds the gallows. And Esther's failure also gives the king time to go home with an upset belly and not be able to sleep, to go into the Chronicles, to learn that Mordecai had never been rewarded so that Mordecai could be raised up so that Haman would have to drag him or, or walk him or parade him through the capital city. And all of this brings the king and Haman back to Esther's next banquet where she reveals the plot which causes the king to go outside in anger, which allows Haman to fall on the queen begging for his life, which allows the king to come back and think that Haman's trying to assault his wife, which ultimately leads to Haman getting hanged, which leads the king giving Haman's possessions to Esther and putting Haman's position to Mordecai so that Mordecai can pass a law and protect the Jews and through it all, God appears to be absent in all of it when really he is behind the scenes executing his good plan for his good purposes on behalf of his people. That's what's going on. And brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our lives when God seems to be very absent. Where life is very dark and difficult, where we have, have had our, our marriage implode, or we've lost a loved one, or our job is falling apart, or, or the workplace that we're in is toxic, or, or a disease has come into our lives, or one of our kids has lost their minds. Whatever it is, it's this super crazy dark time. It seems like, like there is no escape from it, that God is not at work. But the reality is God is. He's working behind the scenes. We just can't see it. And he's ultimately this God of amazing reversals. And there's this incredible message that is is preached by a fellow by the name of Tony Evans. Many of you guys will know it. He, he worked his way through, through the, uh, for several weeks through the book of Esther. And when he gets to chapter 8, he talks about these reversals. And, and I want to share just a couple of these quick reversals with you of how things look like they were going one way and they ultimately go another way. And this is, this, folks, this is not my stuff. This is Tony Evans' stuff. I want you to, I'm not creative enough to come up with all of this. But open to chapter 8 quick, and we'll wrap up in just a moment. 
Look at chapter 8. I want to show you a couple of these reversals. Verse 1. And on that day, King Azurerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. There's this economic reversal that happens here. Mordecai is the, the guy, and he's getting all this stuff and things like that. And while Esther is wealthy, really the, the wealth is, is put with the king. But now what has happened is a reversal occurs, and now she owns all of Haman's stuff. And brothers and sisters, that happens in the lives of people who love God. Doesn't happen all the time, but there are times where, where you are, are looking at financial destitude. That, that things are going to complete. Something has happened in your life. Maybe it was your fault, maybe it wasn't your fault, and you are struggling. And somehow, God reverses things and makes things work in ways that you could have never expected. I can remember when Kathy and I moved back from, from California back to Pennsylvania. This was back in the early 90s. We, we bought a house in Pennsylvania that we simply could not afford. And, and I had figured out the house that we were selling in California, I figured out the worst case that could possibly happen. What was the lowest amount of money that we could get? And we sell the house for $20,000 worse than my worst case scenario. And I'm like, how in the world are we gonna close on this? And somehow God works behind this. I still to this day don't know how that happened. But the unseen hand of God working, reversing things, this is amazingly, this is not a, a, a prosperity gospel kind of thing that I'm saying here. All I'm trying to tell you is that God works in amazing ways sometimes. Second way, political, look at verse two. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Here, Mordecai was the one under the thumb of Haman. And God reverses it all. And folks, there are times, and, I, and, and you know, we're all over the place politically in our church family, but there are times where, where you're like thinking like, it, it can't get any worse you know, whether, regardless of who's in the office. And God switches stuff. He switches it. He changes things. And it doesn't just happen in, in, in like the political world. It happens in the work world. Sometimes you're working for a complete jerk. And, and you're a faithful employee. And the guy's an idiot or the gal's an idiot. And you're like, how can they be in this position of authority? And suddenly they do something stupid that gets exposed. And they're kicked to the curb. And you're put in their place. That's how God does stuff. He, he's the one that does that. Then there's this, this whole legal reversal that happens. It, it's verses 13 through 14. Because what's going on? The Jews are going to die because there's a law that can't be changed. And things get changed around. God works it so what? So that Mordecai can write a law that basically invalidates the law that can't be changed. Only God can do that. I mean, there are, there are laws in our culture right now that are horrific laws. And you're like, how is that ever going to get changed? Because it's been like that forever. I mean, certainly, that, that, that's what, what the, when the blacks living in the South under all of the segregation and, and all of that stuff, they must have, is, it, is it ever going to change? And it gets changed. Things get changed. Are they perfect? No, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But things get changed because God is working behind the scenes. Then there's a, this whole emotional thing because God gives emotional reversals. Back in chapter 4, the Jews are freaking out. Why? Because they're going to die. And they're mourning and lamenting because life looks like it's over. And now look at verse 16. 
The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Why? Because now they were going to be able to live. There are times in our lives where we think it just can't get any worse. That we are emotionally destroyed. And God comes along and he reverses things and he changes things. And while weeping may last for a night, what? Joy comes in the morning. Praise God for that. And finally, there is a spiritual reversal. Verse 17, And in every province, and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country, what? Declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Basically what happened? The stinking Persians who, who are idolatrous, who are, are polytheists, they now, they come, they're basically what? They get saved. God does this incredible spiritual reversal. We see that happen in the lives of our loved ones. There, there are folks we think that are never, ever going to come to faith. They are simply too far gone. But what's happening is God is working behind the scenes, drawing them to himself. And folks, we've got to be patient. We've got to let God do that work. And what is the greatest spiritual reversal of all? It was on that Good Friday. Jesus is dead. He is laid into a tomb. Satan is celebrating. I have conquered it all. I'm the winner. Saturday morning comes, I'm the winner. Saturday afternoon comes, I'm the winner. Saturday evening comes, I'm the winner. Sunday morning comes, reversal Jesus is alive. Satan is destroyed. Hallelujah. Salvation comes to us. That's the message of Esther. That God works through invisible times on behalf of his people even when we are unfaithful. What kind of God do we serve? Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. We love you. Father, thank you that... that even though we are faithless, you are faithful, God. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, when, when we are so short-sighted to think that, that, Lord, that you are not at work in our lives. And Lord, please strengthen us and, and, and keep us in the midst of this. And Lord, might we trust that you are at work. And Lord, might we I'll rely those words in Romans 8 that, that all things work together for good for those who, who have been called by God according to his purposes. Lord, help us to live like that. Help us to realize that, Lord, that, that when we receive you into our lives, we've confessed our sins, that, Lord, you do work things together for our good. It might not be what we think is good at that moment, but at the end of the day, Lord, if it causes us to trust you more and to know you more, even the most painful is good. Thank you, Lord. You are good, and it's to your son's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.